everybody. We want to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I hope that it's uh, the journey that we've taken through the book of 1 Corinthians, primarily the 15th chapter, dealing with the resurrection, has been a blessing to you. I hope, I pray that it's been encouraging and uh, insightful and um, even life-changing, something that you've put into your practice and changed some of your priorities maybe and, and refocused. And so this is the last week that we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 during this series. And I want to let you know that there will be, uh, for those of you who have been here throughout the series, there'll be an email coming out in the next week or so that will be another questionnaire that will match the questionnaire that we did at the beginning of the series, the purpose for it being that you can see where you've maybe changed your perspective and where you've grown in your, in your view of things or maybe changed in your view of things. So if you would do us a favor, it's all associated with the project that I'm doing right now. If you would do us a favor and fill that out at your convenience and it'll be electronic and you can send that back in. For those of you who do not like electronic things, we'll have some paper copies here for you in the back and you can grab one of those and fill it out. Do remember, if you would, when you're filling those out, there's a, a code, a number that you put on your first Make sure you use that same code. We want to be able to match your, your, your initial questionnaire with your um, post-questionnaire so we can know where you've grown or declined or changed or whatever. So hopefully it's been a profitable season for you. Um, we're, we're in the last verse this morning of our study. Uh, starting next week, we'll, we'll get into... Um, the Christmas season will start a series that will take us through the, through the month of December, so I pray that you'll make it a point to be here for that. It will be an encouragement, I think, to you as we celebrate Christ, and every week is a celebration of Christ, but the Christmas season is specially dedicated on what Jesus Christ has done for us, his coming and his birth, and then we'll look at some other things as well, so hopefully you'll be able to be a part of that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it simply says this, very, very short closing to the uh, chapter. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren or brothers, be steadfast, unmovable or immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Like many of the Apostle Paul's letters, he closes with a verdict. We saw the verdict just prior to this um, to this admonition at the end, the verdict is simply that Christ has risen from the dead. He, Paul, the Apostle Paul often speaks in legalities. He speaks as if he were an attorney defending or making an argument for a case. And 1 Corinthians 15 is no different. The Apostle Paul argues for the resurrection of believers in the last days. And he argues for that as being a fact on the basis of what Christ Jesus, when he resurrected, that in, in like manner, we will also resurrect from the grave and we will resurrect from the grave bodily. And the pressing, the, the, what the Apostle Paul is pressing in this passage of Scripture is a, a, a refocusing of life. 
He's pressing the people of Corinth to stop living in the temporary realm, to stop focusing on that which, that which is, is uh, visible and start looking at the things that are invisible. And this is really, if you take the whole book of Corinthians, what you have is you have a, a, a church that has fallen prey to temporalism. And they're, in the beginning, they're all divided and they're all fighting over which preacher is more important and which preacher is more eloquent. And then they're fighting over taking a brother to court because he's offended you or they're wanting to live in sexual immorality or they're wanting to eat meat that's been offered to idols. And they're wanting to live this, uh, this lifestyle that is built around now. And the Apostle Paul is pressing them to understand that, that, that this that we are, we are going to live forever and, to, and, and pressing us to understand that what we do now and how we live now and the decisions that we make now and the uh, priorities that we have now are, are, are forever things. And so we begin laying a foundation in our lives now for eternity. And that's what he's pressing them to do. It's, it, you, know, you can go back to Matthew 6 where it talks about lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust is corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of these things happen. And he's emphasizing and pressing us, I think, in all of the New Testament, but specifically in 1 Corinthians, pressing us to having an an eternal perspective of life, to look at life differently than the world looks at life, to have a different philosophy and a different focus in how we view the world around us. The world is wrong. The philosophies of the world, the direction of the world, the themes of this world, it's all wrong. It's going in the wrong direction. It has wrong um, perspectives and it has wrong goals. But yet we find ourselves in the church inundated with all of the same philosophies. We find ourselves doing and acting and functioning in the same ways that the world does. So the Apostle Paul is pressing the church to take on a different perspective of life. View life as forever. When we die, it's a part of eternal life. Physically dying is a part of eternal life. We wake up the the next moment in heaven with God, and we live forever with him in heaven. So like Paul's, most of Paul's epistles, he closes with a verdict that the resurrection is true, and then he he admonishes the church to respond He admonishes them to respond to the truth that they've been presented. He's not just presenting them a truth for truth's sake. He's presenting them a truth for application's sake. He wants them to respond. He wants them to act. And that is really, truly what faith is. The instructions that the Apostle Paul gives and the instructions that the disciples receive are conclusive and therefore should lead to some action. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, the end of that verse tells us that knowledge without application leads to pride. Knowledge without application leads to pride. It literally says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, having knowledge of the truth does not, not mean anything unless there is the application of that knowledge, unless you're putting it into practice. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, help us to respond to the seeds that you've planted within us by by producing fruits of righteousness, humility, and obedience. 
While you have one hand here in 1 Corinthians 15, I want you just to invite you to look at uh, Matthew 13. Um, just for a moment, if you turn over there with me, Matthew 13. And this is the parable of the sower and the seed. The seed, is, the seed is simply truth. Whenever truth is sown, there's always a response to that truth. And the soil that's mentioned here is the heart. And each heart, there's different types of soil that the seed falls on to. And the soil determines the, the way that the seed, uh, um, the, the, the soil determines whether or not the seed grows and bears fruit. And he says in, in Matthew 13, verse 36, he says, Explain to us the parable of, this, of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who, of the seeds of the field, he said, Oh no, it says, Of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Okay, that's not the right verse. Let's go back a little bit here. Um, 18, 18, let's go back to verse 18. Thank you, brother. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what has been sown along the path. As for what has been sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a little while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for that which is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves to be unfruitful. It's important to note that the word proves to be unfruitful is an important word here, because ultimately these, these, the, way that the, the way that the seed and the soil work together proves the soil. If the seed falls into the soil and, the, and it doesn't produce any fruit, it's not a problem with the seed, it's a problem with the soil. The seed is truth. The seed doesn't change, it doesn't alter, it's not different based upon the soil, it's the soil that is different. So if the seed falls on a stony ground, which is a rebellious heart, the Lord told the Jews that they had a stony heart, a rebellious heart, if the, if the seed falls on that stony heart, the devil comes immediately and just sweeps it away. It's, it's totally unprofitable. If the seed falls into a ground that is a little bit of soil, it, it will spring forth immediately because the soil and the seed will respond to each other, but it will, it will never, never have any depths of, of root. It will never have any depth because what happens is, is the reason why the soil is so, is, it doesn't go deep is because it, 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 doesn't have, it doesn't face trials well. The Bible talks about the fact that persecution and tribulation come on behalf of the word and that the seed, the, 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 uh, the plant then dies. And then those that fall amongst thorns are those where the seed is sown and it immediately springs forth and it's choked. It's choked by what? Well, it's choked by deceitfulness of riches. It's choked by pleasure. It's choked by the things of this world, the ways of this world, the promises of this world. It's choked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's, it's choked out, and it, and it dies. The Lord goes on to say, 
but the cares of this world. Verse 23, ask for for what is sown on good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The last soil is the only one of all of the four soils that produces fruit. It's the only one that responds, the seed and the soil respond together, and you have a product that is fruitful, that is helpful, that is life-changing. That is the That is the result of the truth being sown into the individual's heart and that individual responding to that truth in faith and in obedience, in in, in submission or in surrender. So the Lord says our our lives, at the end of verse of chapter 15, he says to them that you Corinthians, you need to respond to the fact that you believe that the resurrection is going to happen. Now you need to live like it. It's not just, okay, I believe this in my head, I made a mental ascent to this, but it has to have application. There must be application or it will be fruitless, and in the end, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, it will be ultimately fruitless, meaning that we will be condemned because because the seed never bore any fruit. It doesn't mean that we don't have, of the four soils there, three of them produce a semblance of life. Three of them, there's a sense that there's, there's, a, there's a sense that they are alive. They, they spring forth because there's a little bit of soil or because the, the weeds haven't choked them out yet or the thorns haven't choked it out yet. And they spring forth to life, but they never bear fruit. And the fruit is the evidence of a person being a true convert. That's why the apostle Paul demands this fruitfulness. He's not just telling them the truth to fill their heads with knowledge that we're going to resurrect from the dead one day. The reality of it is if those who are resurrecting from the dead are not saved, they're resurrecting to eternal condemnation. That's not encouraging to them. The Apostle Paul is not feeding them this information to cause them to be full of knowledge. He's feeding them this information to cause them to be full of application. He wants them to change the way that they think to change the way that they walk, to change the way that they live, to change the way that they spend their time, their energy, their money. Their, their, he wants them to change all of these things with a whole new perspective of life. So the verdict of 1 Corinthians 15, we see it in the chapter clearly, is that the resurrection is factual. Jesus Christ is the victor, and Christians are, Christians are to be hopeful. That's the, that's the verdict. Jesus Christ has won. And we read this in the, in the passage before. Um, o death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? It, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have won. The battle has been, has been uh, the, the enemy has been overcome. The victory has been won. We have won the victory in and through Christ. Now he's calling us to live as if the victory has been won. There are four things that I want you to see this morning from this verse of Scripture that I believe the Lord um, presents to us about how we should respond when we hear the Word of God. 
how we should respond when we hear the word of God. In whatever way, um, whether you're reading the word and you're studying it yourself, you're hearing it preached, um, in whatever capacity you're hearing the word of God, this gives us some principles, biblical principles for how we should respond to it, how we should act as a result of the truth that we hear. And again, we need to remember that hearing truth and either not responding to it or responding to it in a negative way is not good. Lots of people, Jesus says in the same passage in Matthew 13, he says that the, 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 um, the intellectual people, the, the, um, the great people of their day have sought to understand these truths but can't understand them. And they've studied them and they've dug into them, but they have no faith. And that, and that faith is necessary for there to be true, true spiritual understanding. You might ask yourself the question, you know, I read the Bible, but I really don't understand it. And you might conclude that there's not faith there, a willingness to submit and surrender to what the Word of God is teaching. And if you're not willing to submit and to surrender to what the Word of God is teaching, if the Lord, if the Lord opens your eyes to understand the truth, he's only leading you down a path of destruction because you're going to become prideful. By his withholding the truth from your mind is actually a grace to you because truth without a willingness to apply is going to be destructive. It's going to lead to your demise. So when you come to church, when you read the word, you need to come to the word and you need to come to church with an attitude of, I'm going to walk away from here and I'm going to make application to the things that I've heard. Otherwise, the Lord will withhold them from you or he'll let you understand them and you'll end up becoming prideful in them. And this is the, the characteristics of the Pharisees. That's how they thought that they were above everybody else. So let's look at these four truths or principles that we see here and some subpoints to go along with them. First of all, if you're taking notes, we passed out an outline this morning, and so hopefully you got a copy of the outline. The first one is the character of the request. There are three things about the request that are made here in this closing of the Apostle Paul's teaching on the resurrection. Three things about the character of the request. Number one is it is a requirement. The Apostle Paul presents this in an imperative tense. It means, or an imperative mood. It simply means that this is a command. It's not an option. It's not, he's not making a suggestion to the church that this is how you ought to live as a result of believing in the resurrection. He's presenting to them the facts. Don't, don't you love how Paul works? He doesn't just give them a command without presenting to them a whole bunch of facts about why they should obey the command. So he fills their head with understanding of, yeah, there is a resurrection, there is eternity, and let me prove that to you, and then let me give you the command at the end. But it doesn't weaken the command at all. The command is still a command. This is not a request, this is an imperative command, similar to what was given to us in verse 34 and 35, I believe, in the same chapter. It's a, it is a command that God expects people to obey. He is demanding obedience. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be, be these things. And he's not suggesting that we be those things. He's demanding that we be those things. 
The Bible isn't a book, remember this, the Bible isn't a book full of theories and suggestions as the world would have us to think. The world is doing everything in their power today to throw out so many different theories that we begin to think that everything is a theory. The Bible is not a book of theories, and it's not a book of suggestions. The Bible is a book of truth. And what it says is true, and it is absolutely true. And it is 100% true and accurate. And everything that's written in it is going to come true. It is a book of truth. And when when the Bible makes a command on somebody, it's not making a command on something that might be good and might not, or might be right and might not be right. It's making a command on something that it knows is right. And it knows is true. The Bible isn't a book of theories and suggestions. It's a book of truth and expectations. It's a book of truths and expectations. I, I, I raised my kids. One of the things, one of the principles that we adopted when we were younger in our, in our marriage and we started to raise kids was we wanted our kids to know who they were and we wanted our kids to know what was expected of them on the basis of that. God is the same way. He wants us to know who he is and who we are in him and he wants us to know what's expected of us. Like a parent would do. And it's an expectation. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's an expectation. These commands should result in obedience to Christ, dependence on the Spirit, and glory to the Father. And these commands that the Lord gives us in His Word, He doesn't expect us to carry them out in our own strength. They're commands given to us because we can't carry them out in our own strength. Therefore, we depend on the Spirit of God that lives within us. And then ultimately, it goes to the glory of God. If you accomplish what God commands on your own strength, you get glory. So he commands things of you that you cannot do. He commands of you the impossible so that you will have to depend on his spirit and then give glory to the Father. It's a requirement. If God is your master then obedience is a natural response. Right? If we are the master, then God's obedience to us is the natural response. But if he is the master, our obedience to him is the natural response. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says it this way, and Samuel says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Obedience is what the Lord requires of us. Obedience is what the Lord expects of his children. Not only is it a requirement, but number two, it is relational. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren... He uses the same or similar term to what he used earlier when he was dealing with the victory that we had. He called them brothers, but now he presses it further. He calls them loved brothers. And we've heard the word agape before in the, uh, um, for love. This is that. This is the agape brethren, the loved brethren. This is not... This is not the, Lord, the Lord and the Apostle Paul are not giving us instruction that is feelingless. Imagine somebody who loved you so much 
that you were convinced that they, had, they never would ask you to do anything that wasn't, had your best interest in mind. Imagine believing that and having somebody that you trusted that much. Maybe, maybe you have a wife or a husband that you feel like you can trust in that way. Now magnify it by a thousandfold and you get close to where God is at. He never asks us to do anything that doesn't have our best interest in mind. He loves us so much and he cares for us so much that he would never ask us to do anything that didn't have our best interest in mind. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, all of the things that God had Adam and Eve doing were for their own good. And what did Satan do? Satan tested them and said, is God's heart really to love you in this or is it to restrain you and keep things from you that are actually good for you? That was his temptation to Eve. And I will suggest to you that that's his temptation to you. It's his temptation to you right now. God is keeping things from you that are actually good for you. And you know what that does? That impugns God's character. God would never, it's, this, is a, this is a relational book. It's a father writing to his children of what he expects from them because he knows what is best. Who knows better than God who created all things what is best for, God, for God's creation? Who, who knows better? Does anybody know better? Who knows how a marriage should function better than God? Who knows how a children and parents should interact better than God? Who knows how an employee should function better than God? Who knows how we should function in life better than God? No one does. No one does. But yet this is the, this is the work of Satan to convince us that God doesn't have our best interest in mind. God is keeping things from us. Which is, which is a lie. It's a relational book. My beloved brethren, he's writing to them with a heart of love for his people. He's caring for them. He's being compassionate with them. He's trying to direct them as what is best for them. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is, it is what? What's the next word? Does anybody know it? It is profitable. You know, we think of that word like how you put money into an investment and you get what back? You get profit back, right? That's that word here. The word of God is full of profitable things. Do we believe that? I mean, I don't know. I think we, I think we say we do. The Lord, says that, the Lord says about the generation that he spoke to in his days, and I don't know that, we're, I don't know that we haven't moved further away. He says that you're... You're close to me with your words, but you're far away from me with your heart. And you got the right things to say. We all know the right things to say, don't we? But the question isn't what we say with our mouths. When we stand before God one day, He's not going to ask us to, He's not going to ask us to justify ourselves. He's just going to open us up. He's just going to open us up. And it's going to all be exposed. The Bible even says that we're going to be naked before him. And it doesn't mean unclothed. It means everything that we've ever done is going to be exposed. It's not going to matter how... Listen, we live in an American culture that is so similar to the Greco-Roman culture in that they were rhetoric-minded rhetoric people. If they could convince somebody of something, they would. We live in that culture today. But what we do in the dark is so different than what we do in the light. 
It's a relational book. All scripture is given by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, so that the man of God may be complete, may be, um, the word is like mature, equipped for every good deed. That's what the word of God is to us. The third thing in regards to um, our first point of the character is simply this. It is a revolutionary, it is a revolutionary um, command. It is a revolutionary command. What he tells them is this. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be. This word be is so important in this text. Actually, this is the, this is the verb that's used here that is the command. What is he commanding them to do? He's commanding them to do nothing, isn't he? He doesn't say, therefore, my beloved brethren, do, does he? What does he say? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be something. This is a revolutionary command. What he is commanding them to do is to be different. It's not just to do different things. It's not about their actions. The Old Testament was about their actions. The New Testament is about their person. It's about being something new. It's about being something different. God is calling them to be transformed from the inside out, to be made new. You think about this in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord says, in the Old Testament, you were told not to kill, right? In the New Testament, you're told not to be hateful. In the Old Testament, you were told not to commit adultery. In the New Testament, you're told not to be lustful, right? And all throughout the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you have this principle of doing Old Testament, being New Testament. You don't have to worry about somebody murdering somebody if they're not hateful, right? You don't have to worry about somebody committing adultery if they're not lustful, right? The New Testament is about God changing us, transforming us from the inside and it exposing itself on the outside. God is calling us to be something different. He's calling us to change, not just to do something different. Jeremiah 17 and verse 10, the Bible says, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. We move on, number two, the context of the request. The context of the request being convinced of the resurrection should lead an individual to be an employ, in employment for the Lord. The context is simply this. He says two things that give us the, the, the flow of the context. He says, he says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the context, first of all, is this is the Lord's work. We're, we're called as as. Those who have been convinced of eternal things were called to be always doing the work of the Lord. There's nothing that we do in this life that we don't consider that we are in that moment doing that thing for the Lord. We're always doing the context of, our, of this command is that we're always, with an eternal focus, we're always doing things for the Lord. That means everything that you do, you wake up in the morning, you begin to get dressed, you go throughout your day, you're always thinking about the fact, I am serving God right now. 
In every aspect of my life, I am being a representation of God to the world around me. That's what he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So it doesn't say if you believe in eternal things, you're always going to abound in the work of your company. It doesn't say you're going to always abound in other things, becoming a great athlete or this, or, you know, we take, I, uh, we take Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we just totally rip that thing apart, and we make it mean whatever we want it to mean. This was talking about the work of the Lord. Always, the context of which, of which an eternal focus will drive us to, it will drive us to realizing that we're always serving the Lord. Can you imagine you know, the old picture? Well, I don't know if I want to go to heaven because all you guys are going to be doing up there is playing harps and worshiping God, right? Anybody ever heard somebody explain heaven that way? First of all, heaven's not going to be that way. But secondly, if it was, if that's the way that God thought was the best thing as we'd be playing harps and worshiping him, I'd be up for it. The issue is it's not. And what he's wanting us to do is to take this perspective of always, so in eternity, we all believe in eternity, 100% worshiping God, right? Everything that's done in eternity will be done perfectly, and it will be done in complete worship of God. We all believe that? Here's what he's saying. Bring that to today. Bring that to now. Live in that now. You don't have to wait to eternity to embrace that your purpose is the work of God. Your purpose is the work of God today. That's what he says. So, so if, you, if you're taking notes, the context of the request is, first of all, an eternal work. It is an eternal work. In light of eternity, the Lord's work should be our focus. We work for the Lord, we husband for the Lord, we parent for the Lord, we serve for the Lord, we witness for the Lord, we live for the Lord, and we die for the Lord. Everything we do is for the Lord. Everything we do is for the Lord. The Bible says this in Romans 14 and verse 8, it says, For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. If you have time, read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 7, because it gives us the same idea of not doing what we do as if we're doing it unto men, but doing it as if we're doing it for the Lord. It's an eternal work that we're involved in. Number two, it's an extensive work. He uses two Greek words here. The first word is ergon, which means to sweat, what he's saying is, is the Christian life is not an easy work. You're not being asked to do something that's going to always be enjoyable or pleasurable. You're being asked to do something that is hard. It's ergon, it's, it's sweat, it's toil, it's labor. And then he uses a different word at the end of the chapter where he says that our, our labor is not in vain in the world. The, the Greek word is kapos, which means pain. It means somebody who's come to the end of the day and is just beating their chest because they've worked so hard and they're so weary of working, of laboring in that moment. The Lord isn't calling us to an easy life. The Lord calls us to difficulty. He causes us to serve him in spite of what the world around us does and says. He tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, 
all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why have we lost sight of the fact that we're going to be persecuted? We're going to face challenges and difficulties. It's not going to be easy. The Lord calls us, or the, the content, or the context of the call is it's a call that is an eternal call. It's taking that which is going to happen in eternity and bringing it to today and being it today. And then it's an extensive work. It's a hard work. It's a, it's a difficult work. Number three is the content of the response. What is the Lord asking us? He says, on the basis of our assurance in Christ's victory and on the assurance of our resurrection... In other words, on the basis of the assurance of that which is eternal, are we convinced on our study that we are going to live forever with God if we're saved? On that basis, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There are three things that he tells them in this text, and every one of them is related directly to the work of the Lord. So know this, that the work that he's talking about not being movable in and, not being, and being stable in and being fruitful in, the work that he's talking about is the Lord's work. It's the eternal work. It's the hard work. It's the difficult work. That's what he's talking about, but he gives us three things as to the content of our response. What is he asking us to do? He wants us to respond in faith in these three ways. Number one, he says, I want you to be unwavering. I want you to be unwavering in your service to the Lord. I want you to be unwavering in your service to the Lord. This, literally, this word literally means to be seated. It's to be sedentary. To be unmovable. To not be wishy-washy in our beliefs. The term is used three times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, 37, it's used and it's translated as firmly established in your heart. Firmly established in your heart and then in Colossians 1.23, it's used, it's used to just say to be stable, and it says do not be shifting. So note this, okay? This is so important. He's not saying to be stable in your doctrine. He's not saying to be unwavering in your doctrine. He's not saying to be consistent in your doctrine. He's saying to be unwavering in your application of the doctrine that you've already confirmed. It means don't be inconsistent in your service to the Lord. Don't be in and out of doing the Lord's work. Don't be in and out or, or, or unfaithful to the things that God calls us to that are directly related to, his, to, to serving him. We're a culture today, I'm just going to say it, that we're not faithful to the Lord's house. We're not faithful to the Lord's work. We don't see it as a priority. We don't put it at the, at the top of our list. We put it at the bottom of our list. If there's one thing that gets thrown out the window throughout the week, if you're looking for a place to plug an event, usually it's going to be plugged in on. Come on. We're just going to be honest. What day? It's going to be plugged in on Sunday morning. It's just, we're, we're, and this is what he's telling us. He's saying, don't be floating in and out of faithfulness 
to the Lord. If we're thinking about it from eternal things, when I get to heaven, and now I got a three o'clock golf time in heaven on Monday, but, and like there could be golf in heaven. I think that it's possible. But, 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 but worshiping God is never going to take second. As a matter of fact, it'll all be in worship to God. But the things that we do for the Lord are never going to take, not, not, not fourth on the agenda, but they're never going to even take second on the agenda. So here's what he's saying. Take what you know about eternity and bring it into your life today. Take what you know is going to be your eternal focus and make it your now focus. Right? And when we get to heaven, we're not going to be wishy-washy on doing the things that we do. And really what he's refuting them is their whole, the whole book is about them living for themselves. He's like, you're not going to be living for yourselves in eternity, so just don't live for yourself now. There's no mulligans, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ed. We're to be unwavering in our, in our service to the Lord. Unwavering. James 1, 6 through 8, if you want to write it down, it's a great passage about not being wavering. To act in faith, never wavering, never doubting, it says. He says, if one doubts, he should, not receive, he should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So let's go on. Unwavering, then unmovable. The second term that he uses is unmovable. This term is interesting because it, 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 it connects to the first term. It, it, it emphasizes, if you will, the first term by doubling up on it, if you will. He's doubling up on being on being um, unwavering by saying being unmovable. Because we would say, yeah, being unmovable and unwavering are kind of the same thing, right? But there's something unique about this word that makes it a little bit distinct. The idea of it is, is it's not to be pushed off of your place, right? Not to be pushed. You've, ever, you've, ever, you've seen things like the flag. It, it kind of waves in the wind. And the first term is like, don't wave in the wind with your service to God. You know, if the wind blows this way, oh, things are going good. I think I'll serve the Lord this week. And then next week, uh, oh, man, I had a really bad week, so I think my flag is flying this way now. He's like, don't be like that. In light of eternity, there is no flag waving this way and that way, so let's just bring it in and let's just do it unwavering, right? Well, here's what he says. The second term is meant to describe somebody that is forcibly pushed out of their service to the Lord. And listen, I'll just say this to you. The world is doing everything in their power through mockery, laughter, abuse of Christianity, the, the demeaning of Christians to push us off of our service to the Lord. And, I, and I'll say this to you, they've succeeded in many ways. He's saying, don't be pushed off of your service to the Lord. Don't be forced out of your service to the Lord. Things are gonna get hard Things are going to get difficult. People might, I mean, I, I think of the guys who go out on the streets and they preach on the street corners and, man, they get abused and they get laughed at and they get mocked. And what are you saying here is, is don't get pushed off what you're doing. Don't get pushed off of it because things are difficult because somebody comes up and makes a comment to you and, oh, man, I'm just going to quit now because uh, so-and-so said I wasn't doing a very good job or this and that. And he, what he's saying is don't get pushed off of your, of your service to the Lord. Don't get moved from what you're doing for the Lord. The devil is going to try to defeat you. You know, it's like, it's like going out into a football game and expecting there not to be any defense over there. It doesn't happen, right? They're supposed to stop you. 
They're supposed to keep you from going further. They're supposed to get in your head. Right? Because they're the enemy. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. In light of eternity, don't be pushed off what you know is the right thing to do. Not just don't be pushed off your beliefs, but don't be pushed off of your application of those beliefs. Don't be pushed off of it because it's difficult, because it's challenging, because the devil will make sure that it is. No matter how difficult things get, don't be pushed off your service for Christ. Paul, the apostle Paul, and all the apostles were constantly being pushed. They were constantly being pressed to quit. The government pressed them to quit. The church pressed them to quit. Lots of people, lots of things pressed them to quit, but they would not quit. Why? Because they did the work of the Lord. You remember in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament? Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You guys remember that story? Man, he was performing a miracle work, and there were these two guys, Sam Ballot and Tobiah. Maybe you're familiar with them. And they came to, to, they came to Nehemiah and they said, Nehemiah, you need to stop doing this work. They were, they were concerned that they were, he was going to accomplish it without them, right? A little jealousy, a little envy. They're like, you need to stop doing this work. We've got business to, 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 we got business to do. I mean, he wanted to make sure that, they wanted to make sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed perfectly. But what they really wanted was to hinder the work of the Lord. Do you know what Nehemiah says to them? He says this, the work that I'm doing is too important for me to come off the wall. Some of us need to get that attitude about our work for the Lord. Our work is too important. What we're doing is too important for us to come off the wall. We need to stay the course and stay with what we're doing. And no matter what complaining or murmuring or uh, whatever comes our way, we must stay focused. That's what he's saying here. Don't be movable. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, when he was pressed with the other apostles to forsake their work of sharing the gospel, here's what he responded. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God and not man. We must obey God and not man. We must be unmovable. The last thing in this is simply that we must be unstoppable. He says always abounding. The word always just means to, it means always I mean, it's like pray without ceasing. We are to always, in light of eternity, we're always in eternity going to be abounding in the work of the Lord, so we should always be in this moment abounding in the work of the Lord. Every moment, every day, every, every activity, everything that we do, we should be abounding in the Lord's work. You say, Pastor John, that seems impossible. Yes, it is impossible outside of the power of God's Spirit within you. Listen, we, we live, honestly, folks, we live selfish, selfish lives. We do things because we want to. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, they were eating meat offered to idols. Why? Because they wanted to eat the meat offered to idols. And the Apostle Paul says, well, there's nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols except for the fact that you might be st- causing someone else to stumble. And he points it back to selfishness. What's he doing here is he's pointing them to eternity. You're not going to be eating meat offered to idols in eternity, so just don't do it now. That's all he's saying. It's simple. Live like you believe there's a resurrection. And bring that resurrection to how you function in your life today. Unstoppable. 
The word abound here just means to, it actually is the word superabound. It means to excel. It means to do in excess, to be abundant, abundant, or to do abundantly. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, do it heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The world has many reasons to excel, but none of them are as important as Christians. I think of professional athletes, I think of movie stars, I think of politicians, and I think of how much work they put into something that is empty. I mean, they're the best in the world at doing empty things. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is that we should be the best in the world at doing things that matter. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable wreath, but we do it for an imperishable wreath. We as the church need to be unstoppable. We need to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. We need to be unmovable in the work of the Lord. The government, politics, uh, everything is going to try to push us off of where we need to be. You know it's true. Read your Bibles. Read the Old Testament. There wasn't a government in the Old Testament that wasn't trying to push the Jews off of track. They're going to try to push you off track, push you out of focus of what matters. They want you to think about the now and not the eternal. We don't have time to come off the walls. We must be doing the eternal business of God. We must be unstoppable. The last thought this morning is the cause of the response. And it's given to us at the end. It says this, knowing that in the Lord your your labor is not in vain. The last thing is conviction. What causes a person to live? What causes a person to live as if they were going to be resurrected? And the answer is, is they're convinced of something. They're convinced so much that they're convicted about it. They're so convinced of eternity that they act like they're living in it today. They're so convicted about the resurrection that they've, by faith, begun to embrace it in their walk now. He says, knowing knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is what motivates us to be unmovable. This is what motivates us to be fruitful. This is what motivates us to be unwavering if we are simply convinced of eternal things. My challenge to us is this. I'm I'm afraid that many of us have embraced eternal things as a possibility. But we've not yet been convinced of them. The Apostle Paul uses this term on several occasions in Scripture. Philippians 1.6, he says, I am convinced that he who hath begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. Romans 8.28, he says, I am convinced that nothing can remove me from God's love. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, I am convinced 
that, those, that, that I am convinced of the fear of God and therefore I persuade men. We need to be a people that are convinced. We need to be convinced. Convinced in our heart that what God has told us in his word is true, what God has promised us in his word is guaranteed, and to live as if it were a reality today. That is what faith is. Faith takes the future promises of God and makes them a reality now. Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for me, for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. In closing, the book of 1 Corinthians condemns this temporary carnal lifestyle. And he does it by describing the results of it. Division, selfishness, pride, immorality, idolatry, and greed. And what he calls the church to do is not to stop being divided, not to stop being selfish, not to stop being prideful, not to stop being immoral, not to stop being idolatrous, not to stop being greedy. But what he calls the church to do is stop being temporary-minded. Because that's the solution. You solve all of those things if you stop being selfish. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? It's all solved by us stopping living for me and stopping living for now. And you have that that urge inside of you to do something that you know is wrong. If you're thinking eternally, you say no to it. If you're thinking now, you say yes to it. There's no question in my mind that if the church of Corinth had lived with chapter 15 as their guide, chapters 1 through 14 would not have been necessary. It is my conviction that if GBC, Grace Bible Church, lives with eternity in mind that we will be an unwavering, unmovable, and unstoppable force for the Lord. He tells the apostles in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge this morning. Lord, help us to embrace the fact that it is a command, that, Lord, this is not a suggestion, but a command. It's not built around your being selfish, but, Lord, your understanding of mankind, like, like we will never understand, and you're instructing us in ways that are what is best. Help us to receive your love in these commands And then, Lord God, help us to embrace the change that you're calling us to. Lord, let not one leave this morning without some change. And maybe it all be for your glory. Thank you for this time that you've allowed us to spend together in Christ's name. Amen.